do want to see prices maintained, preferably at, at you know, above $70, uh, preferably above 80 if possible, because they have a lot to recoup after uh, the extreme losses they suffered in, in their revenues last year. Now, there's also talk uh, to try and revive the Iran uh, nuclear deal. What impact would that have on oil prices? Yeah, so the talks have begun indeed on, on Monday. Uh, a lot of uh, optimism has been expressed both from uh, the European diplomats and, and uh, the Iranian side. But uh, personally, I'm not very optimistic of a quick uh, resolution. Uh, there, it is a far more conservative, hardline government uh, in Iran that has taken over after uh, the, the elections earlier this year. You know, Ibrahim Raisi um, has taken quite a hardline stance. Um, he is, in fact, one of the sanctioned uh, entities as well by, by the U.S. So uh, this, it's, not, it's not going to be smooth going. Um, you know, I would expect uh, a few months of negotiations, lots of ups and downs. Um, I wouldn't be looking to uh, the Iranian oil, you know, potentially a little more than one million barrels per day that could come back to the market, but perhaps not until the second half of next year. Vandana, thank you very much indeed. That's Vandana Hori, founder of Vandu Insights. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in the oil markets, uh, Brent crude oil trading at $68.89 a barrel right now. Gold is at $1,781 an ounce. Around Asian stock markets... In Australia, the ASX 200 off half a percent. Uh, Japanese stocks are flat now. The Nikkei 225 pretty well unchanged. Uh, the Cosby has moved up. It's trading about 0.4% higher. Futures markets, though, indicating a fall for the Hang Seng of about half a percent of the open. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Do please stay tuned for Back Chats with Jim Gould and Janice Wong in just a moment. The weather forecast, fine and very dry. Rather cool in the morning. Maximum temperature is around about 20 degrees today. And it's going to be uh, cool tomorrow morning with temperatures appreciably lower in the New Territory. It's 15 degrees right now, 51% relative humidity. And the fire danger warning signal is at red. It's 8.32. Here's Andrew Shawoski with the half-hour news. The White House has said that a person in California has become the first identified Omicron variant case in the United States. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease specialist, said the person returned from South Africa on November 22nd and tested positive on November 29th. This is the first confirmed case of COVID-19 caused by the Omicron variant detected in the United States. And as all of you know, because we've been discussing this, this, we knew that it was just a matter of time before the first case of Omicron would be detected in the United States. And as you know, we know, I've been saying it, and my colleagues on the medical team and others have been saying it, we know what we need to do to protect people, get vaccinated. If you're not already vaccinated, get boosted. The U.S. Supreme Court has begun hearing arguments in the most important case on abortion rights for half a century. The ruling isn't expected until July, but the nine Supreme Court justices will hear arguments over abortion. And in particular, a law passed in Mississippi banning terminations after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The outcome could overturn the historic 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion throughout the United States. Supporters of both sides in the debate filled the street in front of the court during the two-hour hearing. Roe v. Wade is 
important for millions of people. And so part of that fight is ensuring that people have access to medication abortion pills, like because self-managed abortion through medication abortion is really safe. Women are so incredibly resilient. You know, the human being species as a species is so resilient to overcome so much. We need to stop telling the lie that women can't do this or that their life's going to somehow stop or be diminished if they have a child. A fourth student has died after a 15-year-old opened fire with a semi-automatic handgun in a Michigan high school. Police there say Justin Schilling, a 17-year-old student at Oxford High School, died as a result of his injuries in Tuesday's shooting, which left another seven people wounded. Researchers have revealed for the first time how a relatively unknown species of dolphin hunts for deep-water prey. Scientists at the University of Amsterdam say Risso's dolphins use a unique spinning technique to descend at high speed to a layer of ocean rich in fish and squid. They say the dives are an energy-efficient way for the animals to reach depths of up to 600 meters. Thank you for tuning in to the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. Uh, I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Janice Wong. Good morning, Janice. Good morning, Jim. Today we're looking at efforts to control drug abuse among young people with a new study suggesting that uh, substance use remains on the increase. The Hong Kong Federation of Youth Groups uh, says its research shows that the number of young people using uh, marijuana has increased by nearly 80% in the past two years. That's in line with government studies which uh, also show use of uh, cocaine and ketamine on the increase. Uh, from 9.15 this morning, we're talking about uh, Hong Kong losing its top ranking as the world's most expensive city in the latest index from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Let us know your thoughts. Leave a message on our Facebook page, uh, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 Joining us now on the line, we have uh, Sky Su, Executive Director of the Kelly Support Group, which uh, works with young people, and also Dr Vanessa Wong, a specialist in psychiatry who uh, formerly worked for the Hospital Authority's Addiction uh, Psychiatry Unit. Um, welcome to you both. Uh, perhaps, uh, uh, Sky Su, if we can start with you. Hello. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us uh, on the programme. Um, so this study from the Federation of Youth Groups, it's actually quite a small sample. It's just uh, uh, 114 people, I think. But, uh, but looking at the latest uh, government figures from the Action Committee Against uh, Narcotics, uh, which quotes the Central Registry of Drug Abuse, I mean, that shows that the number of reported young cannabis abusers under the age of 21 went up by 92%. That was uh, in the, uh, the first half of this year. Um, that's a lot, isn't it? What, uh, how do you um, uh, attribute uh, that increase? Actually, thank you so much, Jim, for this. Um, you're right. Actually, we've been seeing an increase in the cannabis use amongst uh, young people under the age of 21 since 2019. Um, and that's something that uh, has been very concerning for, for most of us who are working with young people. I think uh, there's a number of factors here um, that are really affecting why young people are choosing to use cannabis. I think the, the most... Uh, the most stark importance uh, that we that we can really recognize is the fact that there are many other places in the world that are actually changing the way that they're looking at 
marijuana. Um, and I think because in some countries where there is legalization, um, it's very often um, easily misunderstood that Hong Kong uh, may have the same thing. So one of the things that we have been seeing through Kelly Support Group through our education, um, particularly to prevent uh, young people from um, using substances uh, and delaying their onset of even doing that is really to help educate them to understand that there is a difference um, in our laws, first of all, uh, that it's not a legal substance here in Hong Kong. Um, and secondly, is also to really um, help young people to understand that there is a difference between recreational cannabis and the medical cannabis that everybody's talking about. I think one biggest misconception that we've seen among a lot of young people is, is often that, you know, because marijuana, uh, there, is, there is medical marijuana, so therefore uh, the ones that they can use it uh, normally through recreational purposes. But the truth of the matter is that, you know, the, the levels of THC, which is the substance that causes the, the side effects, yeah. the euphoria, the, thing, the elements that is actually illegal in Hong Kong, is quite high in recreational marijuana, whereas for medical, it's usually uh, much lower. It's very controlled. Um, in fact, it's more CBD, which is uh, present in substances. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions and there's a lot of um, myths that are going around. Um, but I think to be very fair, there's a lot of young people who are trying it because they feel like, you know, the survey also shared, you know, they're really trying to seek euphoria from it. They're really trying to uh, manage their emotions and they're trying to cope with uh, the difficulties that they've seen um, since 2019 you know, uh, with social movement, with COVID-19. And I think a lot of young people are looking at ways to cope and manage with their mental health. Um, and I think that this is definitely a reason that we're also seeing an increase in the use as well. Mm -hmm. uh, how easy is it to get hold of? Uh, it's relatively easy, uh, I would say. You know, there's a lot of online options. Um, uh, there's there's lots of contacts <laughs> that people can get through the friends of friends. Um, you know, we we understand that. You know, there there are definitely groups that are really targeting students as well, um, making it available for them. Um, and so, uh, I think that in Hong Kong, it is relatively easy. Um, uh, you know, we often talk about the fact that you know you could be in certain parts of Hong Kong and you could be approached. You know. Um, so, but we know for sure that when in working with young people, it's often uh, a friend of a friend who has access somewhere, um, and you know, and if they can afford it. And Hong Kong is mostly middle income, um, and it's not unaffordable for a lot of young people. Um, and even if they can't afford it, somebody's friend would be offering it to them at certain social events. Yeah, like you say, uh, they need, young people need to be reminded that. Uh, Marijuana use is not legal in Hong Kong, uh, where it is becoming uh, increasingly so in other parts of the world. Um, or, but what about the, uh, the, the the health of the uh, you know the the problems that it can cause uh, uh, health-wise and um, and psychologically? Um, do you, you you're involved in educating yeah. uh, young people about those issues? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We talk a lot about, you know, the, the, the effects that it does have on, on young people's health. Um, the thing is, with, with marijuana, a lot of the, the effects on an individual are actually quite long-term. And so for young people who are seeking that immediate high, uh, you know, they're not always thinking about the super long-term effects and impacts. Um, 
they, they, they're more seeking the, the more short-term impacts, which actually um, the, the impairment of, you know, sort of the decision-making, uh, et cetera, it's, it's often the same things that they're, they're actually seeking in that moment. Um, and so I think it is very difficult to really reinforce that education point, um, especially when, you know, society is having mixed messages around this as well. Um, so while we're educating the young people about the health impacts, they're also having people around them who are, quote-unquote, I mean, in, in the words of young people that have told us, well, my friend has also done it, and I haven't felt those kind of, you know, there's nothing wrong with them. They've still been able to finish their exams and apply to university. You know, so they're not seeing these long-term effects just yet on their own, and so it is definitely um, difficult to help them understand and appreciate. Now, one thing that I think we, we do need to think about, and we need to, and we are actually reinforcing this in our education, is is actually the impact of um, uh, cannabis on their mental health. Um, that's one thing that, uh, you know, a lot of young people today are really quite aware and conscious and worried about their mental health, and, and they definitely don't want to worsen that. Um, and so that's definitely an area that we've seen uh, a little bit more appreciation, especially in conversations, to understand how it does help and prevent, um, uh, how it does affect their mental health. I mean. And uh, Miss C, you, earlier you just uh, talked about how the uh, legalization of uh, marijuana in many different places uh, may be leading youngsters into thinking that it's uh, not harmful. What about the growing popularity of uh, CBD uh, oil products? I mean, of course, they are different from marijuana because they don't contain uh, the THC, the substance you're talking about, the psychoactive ingredient found in marijuana that produces the high. But could its uh, popularity be feeding into why more youngsters are taking marijuana? I think the popularity of it is still um, as a result of um, individuals and actually society at large not really understanding the difference between CBD and THC. I think the more we discuss it, the more we talk about it, um, the better. Um, but oftentimes, you know, when we when we think about cannabis, we just say cannabis is bad, you know, CBD is bad. It's all sort of all lumped together. And, and I think that this is actually um, not as good because we do need to separate out because a lot of times if, if um, we don't understand, if society doesn't understand, if young people don't understand that there is a difference, um, they may kind of feel uh, like it's okay. So, for example, now we're seeing, you're absolutely right, there is a lot of popularity around CBD. Um, and, of course, you know, young people know that CBD is part of marijuana, so therefore, oh, marijuana should be okay. You know, and so there is this sort of easy... Um, sort of uh, uh, subtle messaging that, you know, can can enable young people to feel like it's fine. But I think it's really important to, to really be educating about this, to understand, you know, what the difference between cannabinoids, CBD, and THC are, um, to understand, you know, um, that in most places where legalization is happening, there are very, very strict laws um, that are passed in, in, in the production process, in, in the selling process, whereas in Hong Kong, you know, um, this is not even a conversation because it's we have a zero tolerance policy here uh, so so therefore what what we see on the market isn't always going to be um, properly uh, restricted you know they're not properly um, uh, looked after you know there are no laws governing it so so actually what they might find in the market is probably you know not really properly um, uh, looked after and so it, it can be you know something that young people need to make a more informed choice about um, and to be under, able to understand that. Okay, well, also with us is uh, Vanessa Wong, who's a specialist in psychiatry. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning. 
Thanks for joining us. So, so to what extent do you think that um, living with the pandemic has uh, had an effect uh, on the drug abuse figures? Um, I think for adolescents, it's always been an age where they are seeking to push boundaries a little bit. They're learning that they have a little bit more independence uh, and they want that thrill-seeking behaviour. And they haven't by their biological age, develop that part of the brain that makes them mature and more adult-like. So the prefrontal cortex is what um, earlier was discussed. It's about decision-making, it's about looking forward, about consequences and making better choices. So the fact that we've had a social unrest and then COVID, a lot of children haven't had the opportunity to go out and be adolescents and do things with their friends and and have adventures and, and even travel. And I think a lot of them have turned to trying and experimenting with drugs to fulfill that um, need to be a bit more adventurous and, and kind of push boundaries a little bit. So I think that's part, maybe it's part of the reason why there's been an increase significantly the last two years in drug use for adolescents. So, so it's a way to cope with the uh, social isolation and the stress from the pandemic. But, but why marijuana? Why not other drugs? I think a lot of the reasons discussed earlier are very valid, is that it's perceived or kind of it comes across as a, 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 a not very harmful substance because it's uh, legalized in, in certain parts of the world. Uh, there are medicinal uses for it. Um, you can, the, the adolescents I talk to, they, they can be very well informed uh, from the internet and they'll cite studies to tell me that, oh, it's used for this and used for that. And it's, it's very easy to get in, in Hong Kong if you know the right people to, to source it. So um, that I think a combination of factors has led to it being quite a, a gateway drug. And most dealers don't just sell one specialized product. <laughs> they would sell other things and then they, they, they would start experimenting with other drugs as well. So how do you convince young people that uh, you know, they've got to be careful and they've got to be aware? I think with young people, sometimes it doesn't work to just tell them no. So my approach is to have an open discussion about it and take the form of education and helping them make their choices. And the approach may take a little bit longer and it's uh, sometimes you know, not uh, able to, to get them back quite quickly. And I think by the time they've come to see a psychiatrist, there are usually some mental health issues. So also having to address depression, anxiety, paranoia, um, lack of motivation, uh, all these things come together and trying to help the young people feel better about themselves without the use of drugs and trying to educate and, and lead them towards finding their own ways of, of coping better. So that depression, paranoia, lack of motivation, these are all uh, effects of uh, drug abuse? They, they can be the effects of cannabis and it's, it's hard to say that it causes problems for all people and it's also a, a longitudinal thing. So if you use it once, it may not have that effect. It's more the cumulative long-term use of it that some people will have issues from their mental health point of view and whether it's, it's uh, something they, they can address at that time. Mm -hmm.
Mm. And w what sort of issues is uh, drug abuse causing uh, among uh, the young people with their, with their friends, uh, with their families? I think there are two aspects. There's the physical and mental aspect, so what the drug directly does to one person, and the secondary effects of it, which is um, not achieving at school, uh, having difficulties in, inside the family with relationships uh, amongst their peers, uh, problems with law enforcement, um, all these other things that comes with the use of it, even though it may not seem directly uh, um, uh, related. So if you look at studies overseas, people who are heavy users could also end up with more um, driving under the influence. They, they run into problems with the law. They have more financial issues. They don't uh, achieve well in their careers or in, they don't get to university. And I think with cannabis, it's a bit harder to see those effects immediately. And, and the young people don't get that immediate feedback because if you took a drug that was a very hard stimulant, so for example, if you were to take cocaine or meth, you see the effects quite quickly. You you'd run into problems um, that are more obvious. But I say cannabis is more the drug where it's, things don't happen. So you didn't make it to school. You didn't make it to the interview. You didn't get your college application in on time. And these effects don't stand out as much. And it's more the long-term effect of not achieving your potential that is um, it's, it's, it's us helping them to see that. Okay. Um, an email here from uh, Pat on this subject says, uh, regarding marijuana use, uh, the stated sampling sizes are limited. However, it is true that there has been an increase in marijuana use, particularly among the young and young adults. There are two main reasons why people should not abuse illegal substances. Firstly, it's illegal. And secondly, there are negative health consequences of marijuana, particularly if high THC level marijuana is used. There are also several types of users. Firstly, recreational users. And secondly, persons who use marijuana as a come down from taking harder drugs. Uh, lastly, there are habitual users. Um, uh, Sky Sue, um, do you find that um, people who use marijuana uh, tend to go on to, if you like, uh, uh, harder drugs later? I think, you know, um, you know, when we, a few years ago, um, you know, people would say that um, that is certainly the case, you know, where marijuana is considered um, uh, a gateway drug. But I think, you know, over the last few years, as we have seen more, um, different trends, um, particularly with the increase of CBD um, and um, sort of the legalization in other countries, I think that the tendency isn't necessarily that it will be that they would move on to other drugs. Um, I think that a lot of young people, as mentioned by uh, my colleague earlier, um, is is they're, they're choosing to use marijuana because they feel like it's a lesser impact um, as a substance. And it's, it's, it's a little bit like the alcohol situation, you know, where they feel like, you know, um, it, it's going to 
affect them less, so therefore they will take it. Because a lot of young people today, they are quite concerned about their future. They are thinking about, you know, what their next steps would be like. And so in the moment that they're making a choice, that they're thinking about, you know, what's going to affect them the least. So I think I wouldn't say that it will definitely lead to other harder substance use, uh, certainly among some populations where they are in a more higher risk situation, then yes, they may. But not everybody does. Um, and I think that a lot of them actually end up being recreational marijuana users as well. Um, and that's something that, you know, we need to think about. How do we then help these young people to be able to cope with that? Um, and how do we help them to understand that it still will have impact on their health and their mental health in the long term and to appreciate how to do that and how to manage that? I've been uh, reading this uh, report by the United Nations uh, Office on Drugs and Crime, and in, in, in its uh, latest uh, uh, report, it says the percentage of adolescents that perceive uh, cannabis as harmful declined by 40% in the United States and uh, by 25% in Europe. Do you think uh, in Hong Kong there's a similar situation there? Definitely. I think that there is a similar situation. I think that that's why it's quite important to, to understand um, and to help, you know, Jim asked a question earlier, you know, how, how do we help young people to be able to appreciate, in, you know, the situation that they're in? I think it's one of the things that we do try to educate uh, in, in the conversations that we have with young people is is to appreciate that actually cannabis is, um, um, that, that, when we look at the long-term effects, you know, one of the arguments that young people often say is that, oh, um, we can't really see the negative effects right now, you know, and it takes a really long time. And so it's about helping them to appreciate, you know, well, do you want to wait until the long term to find out what's going to happen to you before you make a decision to, to, to change your lifestyle? And, and in particular, when it comes to when they're using just to cope, um, I think it's really important to help young people to find other healthier ways to cope with um, their mental health or things that they're struggling with uh, rather than choosing to use cannabis, for example. Mm. Um, okay, uh, Vanessa Wong. So the study from the uh, Federation of Youth Groups also found that uh, use of methamphetamine hydrochloride uh, also known as ice, uh, was uh, on the increase and also the use of cocaine. Um, what have you uh, observed in your professional practice in terms of, uh, you know, the type of substances that, uh, that are being abused? I think for, if we're talking more the young people, um, sometimes they, they may or may not have the funds uh, or the, the connections to get these drugs, which can be a little bit more expensive. Um, with cocaine, I think I'm not seeing that many uh, young people uh, in my practice using cocaine. They may have uh, tried it uh, once or twice. Uh, and with um, with ice, um, I think also that the, the it's not just ice. I think specific to Hong Kong, there's a lot of um, ketamine use as well. And I think that's a, a cheaper uh, option for some people to use in Hong Kong. And, and, and ketamine is more of an, uh, a problem, I, I would say, than, than meth. Um, but yeah, meth is definitely not a good drug to be on because it does cause a lot of mental health issues. And uh, I have seen very bad outcomes of people using meth where they either have hurt themselves or hurt other people or um, their mental health is significantly 
uh, affected to the point where they, they may need uh, medications or even hospitalization. Um, I think for young people, I agree that they, they are quite uh, health conscious these days. So they would um, talk to me about how vaping it or different methods of taking it reduces uh, damage to the lung uh, tissues. And so they, they, they would, I think, in general, lean towards drugs that are considered or perceived to be less harmful. Um, okay. Uh, also, looking at the government figures, says that heroin remained the single most uh, common type of drug abused among all reported uh, drug abusers. That is of uh, of all ages. Although the number of reported uh, abusers uh, had decreased by thirty four percent. Um, that's in the first half of this year, compared with the same period last year. Uh, uh, th that's good news, isn't it? If the, if the you know, uh, that's a significant decline. However, I mean, heroin, of course, is highly addictive and causes all kinds of uh, specific problems, doesn't it? Yes, I think heroin, in the sense of a street drug, uh, its use is still there, but uh, as the government figure shows, it's declining. And we do have methadone clinics to support uh, heroin users who want to come off or be stabilized on methadone. Um, but we, we also don't have a lot of figures on prescription opioids for management of pain. Mm. And mm. I see actually more people who've had issues with um, in terms of their pain medication and they've become addicted to it and haven't been able to come off it and that's something that is also a growing uh, problem uh, especially say in the united states where there's an opioid epidemic and it's not necessarily street heroin it's actually a lot of prescription drugs Mm. Okay, uh, right. Well, uh, I know you, you have to go now at, uh, at nine o'clock, but uh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, that was uh, Dr. Vanessa Wong, who's a specialist uh, in psychiatry and who formerly worked for the Hospital Authority's uh, Addiction uh, Psychiatry Unit. Um, Sky Sue, uh, please uh, stay with us. Um, we've got to take a short break for the news uh, in just a moment, but we'll be back at three minutes past nine. If you want to get in touch, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can give us a call on 233 quick look at the weather uh, fine and very dry uh, top temperature today around uh, 20 degrees the outlook uh, cool tomorrow morning uh, temperatures will be appreciably lower in the new territories currently it's 16 degrees humidity is at 46 percent and the red fire danger warning is in effect You're listening to the news on RTHK. And welcome back to Back Chats with Janice Wong and me, Jim Gould. And uh, this morning, uh, we're talking about efforts to control uh, drug abuse among young people, uh, with a new study suggesting that uh, substance use uh, is on the increase and, uh, and government figures uh, also showing the same. Um, we have with us uh, Sky Sue, Executive Director of the Kelly Support Group. Janice. And um, Ms. Sue, earlier you uh, talked about the need to educate youngsters more on the uh, harmful effects of drugs and the uh, misperception, uh, misperception of uh, certain drugs. How has the uh, pandemic made your work uh, more difficult uh, in, in this area? Uh, that's a great question. I think the, the pandemic has definitely made uh, everyone's work a little bit harder, hasn't it? Uh, I think one of the things that we have struggled with is most of our work uh, 
particularly this type of education, has been to go into schools and uh, be able to to share um, and have conversations with young people in that sort of setting. But, you know, with schools, you know, over the pandemic being closed, you know, we weren't able to attend um, a lot of classes. And it was only in the latter half of the year that we were able to then slowly go back, you know, into schools via online platforms like Zoom. Um, I think that during that time, you know, for for us, we really feel um, content content and conversations around drugs are actually very important. Um, At the the beginning of um, the pandemic in March, April last year, you know, Kelly Support Group did a uh, quick survey uh, with our networks of young people to understand how it was affecting young people's health, their mental health. And in that, you know, we had a question about um, whether or not you know, they felt like they would be likely to um, use substances or alcohol, you know, to, 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 to manage, you know, what they were coping with. And, and there was a significant number that did indicate that they would choose to use substances. Um, and, and that's something that was really worrying for us, you know, because um, during the pandemic, you know, we weren't able to reach them as well. Um, so we have to use a lot of different ways. You know, online outreach uh, is one of them. You know, uh, we started a podcast, you know, to try and uh, reduce, you know, the isolation factor uh, that young people might be feeling um, uh, disconnected with their peers, um, but also be very proactive to try and push out uh, opportunities to really provide online education to a lot of young people as well. Um, and so, you know, it, it it presented a lot of opportunities um, as well as challenges um, for us to be able to uh, really reach youth. And, and so as a result, you know, we've actually created an online portal for learning um, uh, with with emergency funds, uh, which has enabled us to actually to, to put a lot of the education information online um, through a learning portal uh, so that schools, young people can sign up at any time and be able to um, learn some of this information, have an engaging opportunity to, to interact with information around drugs uh, on their own time as well. Uh, Sky, we've been talking about uh, illegal drugs, but I'd like to ask you about uh, alcohol. I mean, now that the uh, pandemic uh, restrictions are easing somewhat, um, uh, more people can go out and stay out longer. Are you finding uh, any increase in like, uh, alcohol abuse? I mean, young people drinking too much. I think that there has always been an, a general trend and, an, and an, a concept that, you know, because alcohol is a legal substance, um, therefore, you know, um, it, it's safe to drink and it's healthy to drink. Um, and I think that that's a, another one of those misconceptions that we have been working very hard at educating young people with. Um, uh, have we seen um, more young people uh, go out and, and, and party, you know, in, in your words? Um, I think it's too soon to really tell because we're only starting to see, and especially with the festivities. But, you know, um, just from the per- per- perspective of prevention, I would say that, you know, families, um, uh, uh, schools, you know, or individuals or groups like Kelly Support Group, we need to step up on the education part and really have these conversations with young people and continue to have these conversations with young people around alcohol consumption. Um, We've definitely seen that um, alcohol is one of those things that are never considered to be a substance, but actually alcohol is um, a a substance um, that that people need to be thinking about. The only thing that is, it's 
legal. And um, I think it, it's it's important for us to think um, as a society at large, you know, sort of what kind of message we're giving young people um, when it comes to legal substances like um, alcohol. Um, because I think that, you know, they there's a lot of mixed messages that are out there. Um, and we see that even with, with, um, with CBD and, and marijuana. Um, that it's, we're not actually very consistent, you know, in how we are talking about these substances, alcohol included. And so in order to really be able to provide the best education and to be able to have conversations that are convincing enough for young people, you know, we do have to have a more consistent stance. Okay. What about, uh, I know obviously Kelly Support Group does a lot of work uh, with uh, young people um, uh, in terms of um, alcohol and also um, illegal drugs. Um, what do you think about the level of uh, official support uh, available uh, to young people? I mean, the, the Action Committee Against Narcotics is, uh, is, is very active, isn't it? I mean, it, is there enough, is there enough uh, information, uh, is there enough uh, support from official channels for uh, young people who uh, find themselves in a situation where they're abusing drugs? Um, I think that we, I think that the level of support um, is something that um, we are struggling with as well because we are finding that, you know, in general, young people are not really wanting to seek for help when it comes to their mental health or when it comes to issues that they're struggling with. And this sense of um, not wanting to reach out for help is uh, quite concerning because mm -hmm. if they're not able to reach out for help or if they don't feel like they can reach out for help. It means that no matter how many resources that you have, um, they won't trust those resources and it will be very difficult for them to actually be able to get better. Um, and so that's one thing that we have been really trying to, to really work at is is building that relationship with young people and providing them with um, the right avenues to get the support that they will need. Um, and I think that, you know, we, there's, there's a lot of information floating out there, and some of the information, I think, is, is quite negative when it comes to substances, and it's a straight-out no. You know, and as Janice was saying earlier, um, we, we have never found saying no uh, to young people as being a good solution to help somebody. Um, so it, instead, you know, what we have found is um, really helping young people to understand where they can for help and um, understand what the pathways are for seeking for help um, and then be able to give them the right information where they need to and guide them through that process. Um, I think that, you know, I think we can always need more support um, and it's the type of support that's really important. It's how we provide that support is also important. Um, we often try to use a very non-judgmental perspective um, to help young people because when it comes to things like substances, given that they already are very skittish when it comes to getting help, uh, we want to make sure that they feel comfortable, that they have safe places or feel safe enough to be able to put up their hand and say, actually, I think I need some help or I think somebody else in my life needs some help. And I think that that is actually the most critical part. And um, for us all, you know, you know, there are many organizations that are providing this kind of support, but perhaps we need to really think about how we are providing the support and the way that we are communicating with young people about the support that they can get. So, Ms. Sue, uh, looking, I mean, from what you're saying and looking at the current situation with uh, no end in sight uh, at the, and in the, in the current pandemic, um, do you expect the number of uh, youngsters uh, taking uh, different kinds of drugs to, uh, to increase in, in the medium to long term? 
Um, I definitely think that, you know, uh, we are on an increasing trend. Um, we we probably will be seeing more because um, young people's mental health uh, in Hong Kong today is really at a place where uh, young people don't know where to cope, where else or how else to cope. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of what we're seeing today with young people using substances is as a result of them trying to cope with their mental health. Um, and this is something that we need to look at as a root cause. And if we are not able to help young people to healthily cope or use positive ways to cope, we will always be seeing an increase. And more and more young people are, if, when more and more young people are struggling, not getting the help they need and are not coping well, then we will see an increase. Um, the reality is that substances, especially the legal ones, uh, are very, very readily available. So, you know, um, we we will always see that sort of difficult trend. Um, and I think that we need to really think about um, how we can really uh, help support young people better um, in order to prevent um, longer-term addiction issues. And uh, you, you're in contact with uh, different youngsters uh, quite often. Um, do you notice, notice any difference between uh, local and international school kids in, in this area? Um, I think in, ge- in general, um, what, what we have found is um, those who are attending international schools are a bit more knowledgeable because perhaps their exposure to other countries and their laws um, and uh, their practices um, uh, are a bit more updated uh, and or they're updated more fast. Um, and compared to young people who are um, attending local schools. But overall, um, I would say it's quite similar, um, especially because um, the access to the Internet and information online is just uh, so quick and so easy. Um, and so the, the only difference would simply be, you know, if somebody is attending an international school, maybe they might get information or trends a bit more faster than others. Um, but overall, it would be a similar pattern, yes. And uh, earlier you said uh, these uh, youngsters, they usually get the drugs from their friends. I mean, what are the other um, ways that, that, that they usually get the drugs from? Um, sort of like I mentioned earlier, I think other than, you know, their friends, which is their main source of uh, obtaining substances, I think there's a lot of online um, portals now, um, whether it's through uh, social media platforms or through websites, you know, um, they're able to actually access this. Um, I remember um, a few years ago, you know, they, we already were seeing platforms that were selling substances under uh, the guise of different names or um, things that, you know, were not actually caught on. Um, and so it was easy for them to just, you know, purchase it online and have it sent straight to their home. And so I think that these are all things and avenues that, you know, there are certain loopholes that, you know, young people have been able to find uh, that maybe at large as a society, we, we need to really look further into some of these um, portals uh, to be able to, to, to prevent them and to help educate young people about sort of the choices that they're making online as well. What's the likelihood that they will get into other trouble? Can you clarify what do you mean by other like trouble? through through the way they uh, they obtain their drugs? Is there? I mean, what what sort of uh, what's the likelihood that they might get into other trouble? I I 
think that the question, maybe what I'm hearing is um, what's the likelihood of them engaging in even more risky behavior, right? Um, and I think that, you know, once a young person is um, trying to figure out different ways to cope uh, with things that they're struggling with, you know, they're going to find lots of different avenues to try and cope, uh, whether it's a substance, whether it's a, whether it's a illegal substance or a legal substance, or whether it's other type of activities that are more higher risk. You know, I think that, you know, if as long as a young person hasn't found a solution to really help themselves or the people around them are not able to help them where they need it, they're off, they're going to for sure be constantly looking for something to support them, um, which is why it's really important for us, you know, in the early stages to provide the kind of right support that they need um, so that they don't engage in any further risky behavior. Okay, well, thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, on the programme this morning. Uh, That was uh, Sky Sue there, the Executive Director of the Kelly Support Group. And thank you also uh, to Dr Vanessa Wong, who we heard before nine o'clock, who's a specialist in psychiatry. Um, And for the last uh, ten minutes or so of this morning's programme, we're going to be turning our attention to our second subject, and that is... Um, Hong Kong being knocked off its uh, position as the world's most expensive uh, city uh, is down to fifth in the list, and that's according to the uh, the latest uh, index uh, from the Economist uh, Intelligence Unit. And we have with us now on the line um, Simon Baptist, who's the Global Chief Economist at the EIU. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, so uh, just... Uh, uh, fill us in in uh, you know what what you took into consideration in um, drawing up the list of the, the the world's most expensive cities to live in. Right. So at the EIU, we follow about 173 cities around the world. Um, we do surveys twice a year of a basket of goods and services. It's different though to those that are covered in the usual consumer price index measures. Um, our basket of goods is um, representative of that that would be consumed by um, uh, visiting business people or expatriates in different cities. So it's very much an international business um, kind of basket. So it does differ from the kind of goods that um, everyday people are buying um, to some extent. But we uh, survey the price of hundreds of goods in the cities and then uh, calculate an index across different categories such as transport, personal care, um, groceries and others are looking at um, looking at uh, how costs are moving in different cities around the world. These range um, all sorts of cities. We cover places, um, you know, very wealthy and developed cities like Hong Kong or New York or Stockholm. Uh, we also cover places uh, like Port Moresby and uh, Damascus um, and Karachi at the other end of the spectrum. So it's, uh, mm. it's got a big range of local cities in there. Mm. Now, Hong Kong's declined from uh, first to fifth. Um, d- how do you account for, for that drop, which is quite a, quite a large drop, isn't it? Hong Kong's been sitting you know, around the top, uh, the top five in the index for a very long time yeah, now, which yes. I guess will be no surprise to people who, uh, who are living in Hong Kong. So it does have, it does have high prices for, for a lot of the goods that we track. But yes, you're right. This year, um, Hong Kong did fall down somewhat. Of course, it's a mix of um, some prices in Hong Kong either went down or they went up by less than the, the, the prices went up in other cities. Um, and then we also saw movement in, uh, in sort of 
city-specific factors in some places that overtook. So this year, Tel Aviv in Israel is the world's most expensive city. It was already in the top five last year, but it's moved up quite a lot. Um, some key reasons for that, uh, Israel did not have much of a lockdown, um, and so domestic demand in the city remains pretty high. The same is true for some other places, um, like Auckland in New Zealand was also a big mover up, although it's not, it's not in the top ten. Um, but uh, that uh, resilient domestic demand meant that people were still buying things in Tel Aviv, goods and services that um, business people tend to buy, and so prices of those went up more. Um, the, Israel has seen a lot of money going into its tech scene. Um, that's had some impact on the currency. Uh, it's also just meant that there's been more... Um, yeah, more uh, demand for goods and services and housing in the city. Um, and groceries was one area where Tel Aviv did also get more expensive. It's also expensive for um, alcohol and uh, gasoline as well. And so they're kind of prices that are driven by government policies. That's what kind of drove um, Tel Aviv to, to push upwards. Um, and then in the case of Hong Kong... Um, some categories where it has become cheaper to kind of stand out. One is personal care. Um, and, uh, for example, the price of haircuts um, has declined um, by a small amount in Hong Kong over the last year. Also, clothing prices have been coming down as well. So those two categories had one impact. And a, a third key factor for Hong Kong is the fact that its currency is taped to the US dollar. With the US dollar remaining weak um, through the last six months or so, that means that the prices of locally produced services um, that are priced in Hong Kong dollars, now when we translate those into an international comparative context, they are now relatively cheaper in the, in the global scene because of, the, uh, because of the weaker US dollar. So they're the factors that have, uh, that have led to, uh, to Hong Kong moving a couple of notches down this year. Mm. So, so what does the findings say about uh, the state of Hong Kong's economy? Um, it, the cost of living isn't, does not have a one-to-one -one relationship with the state of the economy. Um, different dynamics play out in different cities. So one thing we did see this year is that places that have had um, generally fewer lockdowns have seen price rises. I mentioned Tel Aviv and I mentioned um, Auckland in that case. But there were a few exceptions to that, and in a way Hong Kong is part of that, which is that um, in cities that were previously very reliant on travellers of whatever kind, um, sort of buying goods and services in the city. Um, now with fewer visitors, there's been fewer people wanting to buy those things and so um, the prices of them have tended to come down. So that was you know, one factor why, um, say, haircuts in Hong Kong or clothing will have become cheaper with the lack of demand from visitors. Um, other cities that were very heavily reliant on tourism, business travellers, like Dubai, uh, Rome, and Bangkok, they also saw price. Uh, they also saw price decreases. So while Hong Kong, the economy has been stronger in the sense that there haven't been as many lockdowns domestically, um, it does mean that the lack of travellers um, has uh, is showing up in uh, in some of those markets. And uh, do you expect Hong Kong to continue to fall in the rankings? Um, a lot now hinges upon what happens with the Omicron. COVID variant, um, if uh, our baseline assumption at the EIU that we've been working off is that in 2022, we expected to see another um, two waves of variants along the lines of Delta. So that's what our current forecasts are based on. And on that basis, we're not expecting um, 
Hong Kong to really reopen to the world until the end of next year um, at, uh, at best in a large-scale kind of way. Um, so if Omicron follows our forecast, then um, we wouldn't be making any revisions to that. But um, if it ends up being a more problematic variant, say either because it's very transmissible, um, which does seem to be the case, and if that's combined with it's also, say, more virulent, um, or vaccines are less effective, which we don't know yet, um, then we would probably expect prices to go up by a bit more um, because there'll be more of the sort of supply chain disruptions that have affected the price of things like manufactured goods, you know, electronics, um, appliances, uh, cars over the last uh, six, 12 months. Uh, now, Simon, you're based in Singapore, I believe. Yes, that's right. Yes. Now, Singapore came in joint second uh, with Paris uh, behind Tel Aviv. So um, what were the factors that uh, put uh, Singapore up there in joint second place? Singapore is an interesting example in the cost of living. It's been sitting in the top three, four for a long, long, uh, a long, long time now, um, much to the annoyance of the, uh, of the government here. But... Um, a lot of the prices in Singapore that are very high are actually regulated prices. And um, a message I often talk about to the Singapore government is that, you know, being more expensive is not necessarily a bad thing. So one reason why Singapore is more expensive is that um, prices for owning a vehicle are very high. Uh, gasoline costs are high. Um, alcohol and cigarette prices are also high. Now, um, the Singapore is a, is a nicer place to live because those things are expensive, so because um, it's expensive to own a car, not many people do, and so we don't have much traffic congestion in Singapore. So that it's an expensive place to own a car ends up making it a nicer place to live. But they are some of the factors that lead to Singapore being especially high. Um, of course, like Hong Kong, it's a small, it's a small country, um, and so you know, relatively high land prices, not as high as Hong Kong, which feeds through into um, prices Property. of goods and services mm. in the city as, uh, as, as, as firms pass on rental costs. Mm. Mm. Uh, and, and property prices in Singapore are not quite at the Hong Kong level, are they? No, Hong mm. Kong property is uh, is more expensive. I mean, it's very difficult to compare property prices on a like-for-like -like basis um, to have a standardised apartment because there are different um, different norms in terms of how large apartments are, where they're located or, or whatnot. But, yeah, I think it's definitely fair to say that uh, um, it's more expensive to rent or buy a property in, in Hong Kong than in Singapore, mm, absolutely. Mm, mm. So cost of living and, uh, and quality of life, uh, not necessarily commensurate. I mean, if you talk about in Singapore, there's more living space than there is in Hong Kong even. Um, yeah. yeah, that's right. And you have to think about income as well, because yes. um, like in our city, uh, Damascus is the cheapest city in the world. It's got the lowest prices, um, but I don't think it's the case that we all want to move to Damascus um, mm. because... There's uh, other elements like the political instability and the hangovers from the civil war yeah. there, but also that wages are very low. Um, so the, the uh, Syrian currency is extremely weak, and so earning, earning money in Damascus does not go very far. So yes, prices are low, um, but what the amount of money that you tend to have to buy those things um, is also is also very low. So if you were looking at quality of life, you'd have to look at income as well. And of course, there are things that affect quality of life apart from consumption of goods and services, um, such as uh, you know, environmental quality. Mm. And what about Paris? Paris joint second? 
Yeah, Paris is another city that has um, has been expensive uh, for a long time, and partly prices went up a bit this year because of the strength of the uh, of the euro. But Paris, uh, no major change. It's uh, it's been in the top three for a long time now. Okay, uh, just for the uh, benefit of our uh, listeners, then. So, uh, so Tel Aviv was uh, in top spot, and that was followed by uh, Paris and Singapore in joint second. Uh, Zurich was fourth. Uh, Hong Kong was ranked fifth, and the other cities in the top ten were New York, Geneva, Copenhagen, Los Angeles, and Osaka. So, uh, two cities in uh, in Switzerland. Switzerland's uh, <laughs> is always a uh, up there near the top of the most uh, expensive uh, places, isn't it? Yes, that's right, it is. Um, European cities used to dominate the top ten a lot more than they do now. Definitely a trend over the last five years has been the, the rise of um, Asian business centres. Um, mm. So, you know, this year we have um, Hong Kong, Singapore and Osaka, like you mentioned, in the top ten. Um, in recent years, where there's also been... Um, an, increase in the prices in uh, places like Seoul and, of course, Tokyo sometimes. Uh, well, Tokyo is sitting just outside uh, of the top ten. Um, and a long time, if we went back ten years, we would have seen the top ten dominated by uh, Northern European um, and Central European and Swiss uh, centres. Now, they they still remain expensive, but they have um, sort of had a bit of a catch-up process from the uh, from the Asian business hubs as economic activity has moved uh, more into this region. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much for joining us uh, on the programme this morning. Uh, That was uh, Simon Baptist, uh, Global Chief Economist with the Economist Intelligence Unit. And uh, before we go to the news summary and uh, morning brew, uh, we're going to have a a quick look uh, at the weather. But uh, first of all, thanks very much to our listeners and to, uh, to our people who emailed in. And thanks very much to you, Janice. And Janice will be back with the programme tomorrow morning. Um, It's going to be the weather. It's going to be fine and very dry, uh, cool in the morning. Top temperature around uh, 20 degrees. Uh, Moderate northerly winds, uh, fresh offshore at first. The outlook, cool tomorrow morning. Temperatures will be appreciably lower in the new territories. It will be persistently fine and very dry with large temperature differences between day and night. Still cool in the morning in the following few days. Currently it's 16 degrees, humidity 43% and the red fire danger warning is in effect. As the risk of severe disease and death from COVID-19 increases with age, vaccines are highly recommended for the elderly. Common side effects are usually mild and temporary. Experts advise that those who have had flu shots before can safely receive COVID-19 vaccines. Even if you have a disease, you should get vaccinated as long as your condition is stable. Just staying home doesn't mean you're free from the risk of infection. Protect yourself. Get vaccinated early. The new summary with Andrew Shirovsky. South Africa has recorded a sharp increase in coronavirus infections, which have doubled across the country since Monday. Health officials say the newly discovered Omicron variant may be fueling the surge. Eight and a half thousand COVID infections have been registered in the last 24 hours. Locally, a 31-year-old motorbike rider has died and a driver has been arrested after a crash on Taitam Road last night. Reports say the motorbike was heading towards Chaiwan shortly after 8 o'clock when it was in a head-on collision with a private car near the Sheko roundabout. The rider suffered injuries to his chest and feet. 
And the American actor Alec Baldwin has given his first full interview since the fatal shooting of the cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of his film Rust in New Mexico. Mr. Baldwin told ABC he did not pull the trigger on the gun which killed Miss Hutchins. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Hello. Not too bad at all. Good morning. You never face to chat with me. Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry type violence. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning. Would you like to check in? Welcome to Thursday here on the Morning Brew. Well, we're packing everything into the second half of today's programme, starting after 11 with our weekly house call from Morning Brew vet Dr David Gething. Today, he wants to talk about pet cloning. Pet cloning, not just science. Yep, it is a thing. I wonder how that makes you feel. Creepy or cuddly? Anyway, I'd love to hear from you. That and any questions you may have for our vets. Morning Brew at rthk.hk or do find us on Facebook. Well, at 12.10, join Maestro JC Viennes for this month's pre-Christmas Wine Wine. This time, he's going to be in San Francisco yesterday, thus avoiding the usual Verona early morning call. Chris Watts was busy yesterday, so he'll be with us at 12.40, live from his Motion Dynamics studio in Central. Join Chris and JC on Facebook Live. <laughs> 